Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder. And uh, my voice, I think, has finally stabilized after uh, two straight Sundays of being in very loud stadiums. Uh, if you weren't following uh, along on the Twitters or the Instagrams or anything like that, uh, I was up in Seattle last weekend visiting EJ, went out to the uh, Titans-Seahawks game, had uh, just uh, amazing seats. There's really not a bad seat at all of Lumen Field, but you know we were in the back right up by the 12s flag, could see the whole skyline in the distance. It was a beautiful day for football, You know, beautiful blue skies, the... The rain forecast turned out to to be no rain at all during the game. Just an incredible Sunday of football. Um, And uh, yeah, I'm just blown away by by the quality of the NFL these first two weeks. This has been one of the more exciting starts to the season that I can remember in a long time. And we've just been spoiled by the amount of incredible games that not only that we've gone to in person now, but that we've seen uh, on TV every single week as well. Did you see that uh, folks on Twitter were reaching out to us and saying, let us know where you're going to be because apparently you only go to overtime games, so I'll bet accordingly. (laughs) Back to back. And and to be honest, I've been to a lot of NFL games, and I've never been to one that was uh, a blowout, like ever. I think half of all NFL games I've ever been to have gone to overtime. Like even in the uh, 2013 Texans, I believe it was, they were down at the San Diego at the time Chargers. They only won two games that entire year. And I was at week one. It was a Monday night opener against the Chargers. That one went to overtime as well. And they were awful. And that game still was close. So I just have a unique gift of going to close football games. And uh, I'll just say this. If we end up going to, to Bill's Chiefs in a few weeks, <laughs> I think I think Bill's and Chiefs fans might not appreciate that because it's going to be a barn burner if we do. Uh, you know, can't avoid it. But if we're lucky enough, we've been lucky enough to be in two great stadiums for the first two weeks of the season, see two great games. Uh, most everybody followed along for our, our travel down to Vegas and Allegiant. It was great to have you up here, get to go to Lumen Field. Uh, last time I was there, it was uh, the Clink, CenturyLink Field. Um, 
so I haven't been back in a while. I was a season ticket holder back in the mid 2000s and and have been to a few sort of scattered games since then. But it's been a while since I've been back in that stadium, and it was it was great to see. We were expecting some crappy weather. We got great weather. Again, I thought the seats were tremendous, uh, and the game turned out to be really interesting. We're going to talk about the game in depth, but uh, before we do that, we got to get into drinks. So what do you have? Because that also has a Seattle flavor. Yeah, well, when I was up there, I mean, I've had uh, I've had their product on the show before, but I'm a big fan of uh, Woodenville Whiskey Company up in Woodenville, Washington, probably, what would you say, like half hour outside of downtown Seattle, if that. Yeah, 20, 25 minutes, depending on traffic, about the same distance for me. Again, if there's no traffic, if there's traffic, it's like an hour from me. <laughs> and uh, they make just a, a fantastic product. Probably the most readily available one for most people around the country is going to be their port cask finish uh, or their straight rye. They do a 100% rye mash bill that, uh, mash bill, excuse me, that uh, traditionally 100% rye mash bills are very temperamental and they're, they're very hard to get right and they get theirs right. And uh, they just released this one like the week before I came up and you can only get it at the Woodenville Distillery in Woodenville, Washington. And it is a Muscatel finish bourbon. And uh, if you don't know what Muscatel is, it's like a Portuguese uh, fortified wine. And to my knowledge, this is the only bourbon in the country that's finished in Muscatel casks. So it's a very unique thing. One of the more unique whiskeys I've ever had in my life. Um, and it's it's not like a traditional, like a, like a sherried bourbon or a port cask finish. Like it's totally different. Uh, a little bit drier, not as like fruit forward, more like apricot-y. Uh, you definitely get a lot more spice to it. It's it's incredibly unique, but really, really damn good. And since they don't ship it anywhere, unless you're in the state of Washington, I had to pick it up there. Uh, I actually brought back a, a whole haul of whiskey back to California with me. This is one of the bottles I got. And uh, they make uh, just really, really tremendous stuff. So strange that you came to Washington and went home with whiskey and and some sunshine, which is really odd. Uh, but yeah, you also very off brand for me. <laughs> very off brand, but you did get to see it pour here. Uh, we went out to dinner on Friday night, and and Brett did get to see the true Washington open up. We had our first serious rainfall this season, and it was. Um, down south, they call that a toad strangler, and uh, it it was impressive. We had we had rivers of water running down the hills in, in Tacoma. You had geysers there. shooting up out of manholes. Let's not yeah. undersell this thing. Yeah, it was it was showing off a little bit. We had two and three foot geysers at the bottom of the hill shooting out of manholes. So it was it was a good time. But um, I actually have a beer from a listener. Uh, Got me this a bit ago, and it seemed right to pull it out. I've just been sort of keeping it in cold storage, but we're at that time of year. And this is a Paul Anner, Oktoberfest Marzen, for those of you that don't know Marzen's. Um, uh, certainly rounder than a lot of German beers. Um, uh, closer to what uh, in the U.S. would call an amber. Um, it's their Oktoberfest. Paul Anner, you know, hundreds of years brewing beer. Fantastic stuff. Uh, brought me a six pack of this, uh, which is very nice of him. And then um, for my shot, uh, something I shared with you when you were up here, which is the Dooley's eight year rum, which I gave to you blind and said, try this. And you swore that if I hadn't told you it was rum, you would have you would have thought it was whiskey. So for those of you that say I don't like rum because all you've had is is like a Bacardi White or a 151, any kind of jet fuel like that. 
go ahead and go out and get Dooley's. You can find it at uh, most BevMo's or uh, Total Wine, whatever your large beverage stores are. Get the eight-year-aged Barbados. It's in the mid-20s, 25, 26 bucks a bottle, and it is delightful. It's got a very dark brown color to it um, and doesn't have the typical burn that you'll get out of rum it's warm it'll warm you up but it's it's round and and somewhat sweet so give it a shot if you don't think you like rum Dooley's aged eight year rum really really good stuff by the way one of my like favorite rums that you've ever given me and you give me some pretty good rums before uh before we get into these games by the way i do want to give a quick little reminder to the listeners about our new format this year calling it the rule of three so we have uh, three segments of three parts each. We got three up, which is, you know, three games that we really loved watching for, for one reason or another, or, you know, three coaches or teams or players that are kind of ascending that we want to talk about. Three down, which is three teams or players or coaches that, that had a pretty rough week and we want to talk about their struggles and, uh, you know, what it could mean for them going forward. And then three interesting, which it can be three of anything. It can be, you know, something weird that happened in a game, uh, you know, a team, a player, a coach. Again, just something kind of a, a one-off interesting note that that we couldn't go an entire show without talking about. So we're calling it the rule of three, starting off with three up with the game that, as mentioned before, you and I were at in person this past week up in Seattle, Titans at Seahawks. Uh, it, it was a fascinating game to me for for multiple reasons I would say the most surprising part about that game is you know maybe it was just the angle that you and I were were sitting at in the seats because you know we we were not at midfield we were more kind of behind one of the end zones and we're watching Derek Henry get the ball Derek Henry get the ball Derek Henry get the ball and nothing was really happening for them on the ground at least seemingly until that 60 yard touchdown run. And you and I were like, man, they're, they're really establishing the run. Like they're down by 16 points and they are committing to the run. They might want to start opening it up here. And then we look at the end of the game and it's kind of a testament to the difference between watching a game live and watching it at home is when you look at the stat sheet after and he's got 180 yards and three touchdowns. We're like, damn, I didn't even realize that he was piling up that kind of yardage. Maybe it really was working. But um, I think it's just kind of a testament to the the body blows approach that that Derrick Henry brings you where, you know, you're down by two possessions and you're still insisting on running the ball, even when all the analytics in the world tell you not to. And then he breaks a 60 yard touchdown. You're back in the game. You get a stop. You get the ball back. It's tied. You go to OT. You get one more stop and then you win almost entirely because of Derrick Henry. And it's uh, it was a it was a fascinating game for how it it kind of went against modern offensive thinking and they still got a road win it's uh it, it was really really interesting to me what what about you yeah in a very tough and loud place to play uh lumen field is notoriously loud uh they give you the they don't just give you the decibel ranking they give you the richter scale uh when plays go off there and we saw Tannehill and the Titans grab a couple of false starts. That's just blood in the water for the fans. It just gets louder. Um, they they know they can't hear coming in. They have hand signals and and you know the guard touching the center to snap it and 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 just all the regular you know heavy noise protocols that an NFL team employs. 
doesn't really matter. It's so loud that it starts sort of cavitating inside your skull. Like it's physical noise. And to come out of there uh, with a road win again, relying largely on Derrick Henry. And I'll, I'll just say that Lumen Field has a way of like shrouding rushing yards. Because even when I was a season <laughs> ticket holder, um, Sean Alexander, and we would always talk about this in the couple of seasons that I had season tickets. Sean Alexander would look to have very normal days. You know, you'd be like, yeah, he's, he's doing all right. Like he's probably got like, I don't know, like. 70 yards rushing 75 he's probably got another 15 20 receiving again you look down at the stats at the end of the game he went for a buck 25 on the ground 35 through the air and two scores and you're just like it didn't it didn't feel like that right so that (laughs) it felt reminiscent of those performances in in a certain way because i don't know that field just kind of eats it it doesn't when you're there live Maybe it's the noise. Maybe it's that you're concentrating on other things. But it felt like a very Seahawks game. Uh, our buddy Danny Kelly, who we've had on the show, who's a you know Seattle native, lives here in Washington, uh, has been watching Seahawks for a long time, came from field gulls and is now at the ringer, tweeted out like, oh, yeah, as a person that's watched the Seahawks, I'm sure missing that extra point won't come into play like midway <laughs> through the third quarter. And I was like, I was laughing really hard and everybody in our section was, you know, turning around like, why is this guy laughing when the Seahawks are kind of faltering? I was laughing at Danny's tweet uh, because you knew, you just knew as, as somebody that sat through, you know, a couple of years worth of games in that stadium and, and watched plenty more on TV, like this is how the Seahawks do, right? This is their thing. They don't play normal games. They keep it close. A lot of times, given Pete Carroll's success, they do pull it out in the end, right? Russell Wilson will pull them through fairly often, but they are the cardiac kids, right? They do not make it easy on their fans. And it just felt like, I tweeted out at one point, like, oh, this is pretty much setting up to be the most Seahawks thing ever right now. And, you know, it just played out that way. So uh, it's not great for the Seahawks fans that came home. For all the Tennessee fans that were there, and there were many, um you know surprising amount by the way yeah yeah they pulled out a a, what i would call a very valuable victory like this is not an easy place to come it did not look like the day was going to go their way for most of the day even forcing overtime didn't look all that likely again the dam breaks after you know Derrick Henry's battering ram, but again, Seahawks controlled him, and many teams have done this controlled him controlled him controlled him limited yards limited yards there really wasn't any sort of spark or life and then look you know quandre Diggs takes a step in the bucket realizes that he might have gone a step too far gets the nasty little backside stiff arm and and derrick henry goes and the game changes and then he gets a bunch of carries in overtime as well and he racks up 182 overall yards three touchdowns it's the difference in the game and uh another speaking of stats that sneak up on you Bobby Wagner had 20 tackles, 20 tackles in one game, which I we, I can only remember off the top of my head like three times, <laughs> you know, seeing a linebacker be that productive in one game. Maybe it was the product of the fact that, you know, Titans ran the ball like 40 times, but, you know, it's, it's another one of those things where it's like because when you're at Lumen Field, maybe it's because... There's like not a whole lot of screen space anywhere in the stadium. Like you, just trying to find the score 
is a little bit of a chore there. There's like a like a narrow band halfway up the stadium where it's like the only place you can see the down and distance. Contrast that to Vegas where there's screens everywhere and you see how many, you know, targets Darren Waller has at any given moment. Um, you know, you, you don't really get that in-game stats update experience. And so, you know, you look at the stat sheet and you're like, shit, Bobby Wagner had more tackles in one game than some linebackers get in a month. It's uh, it's just kind of a, a footnote, obviously, in his very illustrious career. But very few linebackers I can remember have ever done that before. He's a guy you want to watch in person. Like, Bobby Wagner is, and he's not in any way under the radar. Everybody knows Bobby Wagner's Bobby Wagner. In fact, he got a Pro Bowl vote last year, uh, you know, and, and was considered all pro, uh, you know, considered for all pro because he was Bobby Wagner, not because he had a great year, but like on Sunday, he looked like Bobby Wagner. And, and it's cool to know that you're sitting in a stadium watching a guy that's probably going into the hall of fame and deserves it. Right. That sack that he got. And one of the things that I think people don't appreciate about Bobby Wagner is how freaking big he is. And in person, you see it like the size of the average NFL linebacker has shrunk. We have a lot of guys that are playing about 215, 220. There's a lot of converted safeties that are playing as a second linebacker now. And they they look just like safeties. Right. Bobby Wagner in no way resembles a safety. Guys, 245, 250 looks every pound of it and can still run like a safety. When you see a guy like that up close and you see what he's doing, he's not just plugging against the run. He had a great sack, flashed through the line, just annihilated Ryan Tannehill. He is a big, powerful dude that runs really, really well. And, you know, you see people occasionally make the Erlacher comparison because he can cover that kind of ground. He can cover in the pass. He can absolutely bring heavy hits in the run game that that guys that are 215 220 can't necessarily some do uh but wagner's just a guy you know i'm glad that i've seen him multiple times in person he's he's one of those guys i can check off my list and when he eventually gets his gold jacket i can say yep yeah that's a thing that's that was not press made that was not hype like that guy did his job really well for a long time and a lot of big games and i got to see it if anything and this, again, is weird because he's one of the best linebackers of his generation. I feel like he was underappreciated in for his, a long like, time. Prime, prime, like, yeah. you know, the early to late Legion of Boom era, you know, like the early 2010s to mid 2010s. Um, I, I can't think of very many linebackers that I think were as good in coverage in Bobby's prime, like in terms of not just athletic ability, like, yeah, he could get depth like Erlacher could, but route recognition, ball skills, ability to flip the hips. He's one of the all timers to me. And even though he will, as you mentioned, go to the hall of fame, um, I feel good that I was able to see him live. Cause I, he's one of those guys where like, I have like a list that I'm checking off. Like I got to see a Russell Moonball to Tyler Lockett live with my own eyes. <laughs> you like, got to see a couple. Checking that one off the list. Got got yeah. to see a couple. Um, you know, I, I got to see a Derrick Henry 60-yard touchdown, grown man run live. Like I just have this list of guys in the NFL that I'm going through where it's like I want to be able to see them before I die. Uh, and uh, I it, that was a great game to go to. As a neutral fan, 
It was entertaining from start to finish. Um, glad that you invited me up to come see it. Yeah, I'm glad we got tickets. Shout out to my buddy Brandon Scholes, who runs the Field Goals podcast. Uh, he got the block of tickets. He wasn't able to make it. Uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to call a redo on that one because uh, really enjoy Brandon's company. But turned out to be a special day. Um, your first time in the stadium. Uh, the rain held off. It wasn't just supposed to be raining. It was supposed to be storming. If you looked at the weather app with little lightning bolts and the whole bit. So we went all prepared. We we ended up getting great fall weather. Great football day. Really exciting game, second OT game in a week, and um, you know Seattle will will right the ship. They always do. Um, Titans kind of got off the schneid they had going for again the first week when everybody overreacts and and Rabel got back to ground and pound and you know Titans pull a, a very valuable what will be a very valuable road win probably at the end of the year. Um, so really fun. We got to eat some great food. You got to go to Woodenville. Uh, it was just all around. It was a ton of fun. I'm really glad you came up. And uh, right after that game, because that was the afternoon game, uh, our second three-up of the week happened, which is Chiefs-Ravens. And I only got to see the second half live, so I had to go back and watch the first half later. Uh, But really, it was the second half that ended up being the more important half to see, so I'm glad I I saw that one live. Um, There's really no other way to describe that game than just batshit crazy. I mean, it, it, it started out as like a typical, you know, Chiefs-Ravens game. You know, Chiefs had some big plays. They kind of took control in the third quarter. They were up by two possessions. Next thing you know, like, Marquise Brown gets a big play, and you're like, oh, shit, the Ravens are back in this thing. You know, they're down to, like, their fourth running back, and Rashad Bateman's still hurt, and, you know, Lamar's just doing it all at some point you know he's under pressure and still scrambling for huge first downs and just kind of willing this offense back in the game and then you know the typical Travis Kelsey back-breaking you know huge touchdown happens you're like okay it's over and then it wasn't (laughs) you know then the Ravens clawed back again and I I don't want to say it was like a franchise changing win because it's the Baltimore Ravens they've they've had a lot of of amazing franchise moments but I think in terms of the trajectory of this era of Ravens football, where they win 80% of their games, except the ones that really matter, which are the Chiefs games or you know the Titans in the playoffs, or it felt like nothing really matters for them from like September to December because nobody <laughs> takes them seriously against some of the other you know, big shots in the AFC and eventually in the NFC if they ever make a Super Bowl. This was a game that that felt like it was kind of turning the tide in this era, where now, if they're going up against the Chiefs again in January in a rematch, we have to take that seriously. You know, they, they got the Titans monkey off their back already. Now they got the Chiefs monkey off their back. We know that they can beat the Steelers. We know they can beat the Browns. But it was those two teams specifically that I felt was giving them the most problems. And now they actually have wins against them. They actually beat Patrick Mahomes in a primetime game, despite being down by two possessions. These were all things that everybody said they couldn't do, let alone with all the injuries they've had. And they just did them. This to me kind of changes the course or rather changes the expectations that I think we can have for the Ravens because they proved that they can do it. They proved that they can be heavy underdogs against arguably the best team in the league and still win. 
just a, a massive, massive victory for them that I think um, completely transforms my outlook for them as a team for the rest of the year. Yeah, I had fairly high expectations for the Ravens because they draft well, the roster construction is good, they have enough talent. Last year, they really sputtered on offense. This year, we thought, okay, they've added some of the pieces they were missing, Bateman especially. And, you know, then Bateman gets hurt early and, you know, they have offensive linemen go down and you think, ah, geez, okay, we're we're just not going to get to see it again or we're not going to get to see it until late and it might not matter. And here you go into this early season game. Well, it, you know, Kansas City comes to their house and there is still something to, to home field. There is, especially this year with fans back in the stadium. And everybody says, like you said, the narrative was, look, you're going to win most of those games. You got a great shot in most of those games, probably favored in a lot of those games. But when you go to Kansas City, like, I don't know, we're just kind of going to shrug and say Pat Mahomes, right? He, I don't know. They got Pat Mahomes. I don't, I don't think I'm going to give you points. I don't think I'm going to give you the line. And now Ravens fans can kind of buck up the chest and go, yeah, and we got Lamar Jackson. And it was the <laughs> difference, right? Lamar Jackson, without Lamar Jackson, it might seem overly obvious to say oh, this. They, they lose Ravens don't 20. win this game, right? <laughs> no, not even close. They're yeah. not close. And Lamar Jackson changed his game. And I tweeted out, Lamar's going to Lamar. And for the second week in a row, we got to see him live the first week against the Raiders. And he had some plays in that game. They ended up winning that game. But he had some plays, again, to keep them in that game where you just kind of throw your hands up and go, I, look, if you're a defensive coordinator, you just, you're going to check off three or five a game where you just go, well, it's Lamar Jackson. We did, we did our very best, and he did his thing. Um, he did that a bunch in this game. He did it with his legs, he did it with his arm, more so with his legs, but not without his arms. Again, you talk, without his arm. You talked about um, the big throw to Brown that sort of kept them going. There were several runs that were, again, you just look down, and it's a video game occurring in front of you. Like This is stuff that doesn't happen on a typical football field, and I really think Baltimore can lean on that and say, look, if we get a good game out of Lamar, we can beat anybody, including Mahomes. And look, the KC fans say the same thing about him. Look, if we get a good game out of Mahomes, really doesn't matter. We can beat just about anybody. And they're right. They're both right. And now it sets it up for, hey, look, we wanted our house. If we end up playing you again in the playoffs or whatever else, we're, we're not coming in scared. If we have Lamar and you have Mahomes, we like our chances. Like, we've got enough. The defense showed out. Um, Justin Matabuke, who was a guy that we really liked last year, kind of took a little while to warm up. He had a great game. He talked about Owe. Um, you know, Patrick Queen covered a lot of ground in that game. Um, shut down some receivers, which, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of buzz last year that he wasn't worth the pick. Um, but you know, there's great play on the other side too. This is two great teams loaded with talent. If I told you that somebody had, uh, you know, seven catches for 109 yards and they averaged 15 and a half per and ended up with a touchdown, you would not say that person was a tight end, right? Just, just betting, just betting the over, right? That that's not a tight end. Well, it is, it's Travis Kelsey and he is tremendous. He, he's a great football player. He's on my list, much like, you know, you were checking people off your list. You know, I, I've seen Lamar in person. I want to see Travis Kelsey in person because there was that one play. <laughs> it's the one play, like you said, you called it out. The one Travis Kelsey kind of backbreaking touchdown where you go, he's not, he, yeah, he did it, he it did just, it again. It goes, it goes from like, oh, it's a screen for ten yards, whatever. They're gonna get a first down, and then it's like, okay, now it's a twenty yard gain. 
Okay, now it's a 30-yard gain. Oh. Now they got to catch him. And you're like, whoa, it's a tight end. <laughs> Did you hear this the other day? Travis Kelsey brought this up. It was during last week's media cycle. And it was one of those things that kind of floated out there. And I was like, I was looking around, you know, metaphorically going, did anybody else hear this? Like, this is insane. Travis Kelsey can run any route on any play that he wants so long as he doesn't interrupt the other players' routes. That doesn't surprise me because when you watch him on tape, sometimes you're like, he like he just looks like he's making it up as he goes along sometimes. So here's a thing that, you know, yeah, when you hear it and you think about it, you go, that kind of makes sense. And that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. If you have a knowledge of NFL passing games, even a fairly rudimentary knowledge of how complex NFL passing games are and what the rules are and what receivers are and how roles differ and how one thing is not the other, and you go into certain systems and there's site adjusts that are based on leverage on feel like to say to any player oh do whatever you want because unless you mess up somebody else's route to understand and to trust that player that they know everybody else's route they know what to do and they're gonna find the best thing more often than not that's like going to an nfl quarterback these days and saying you know you know the playbook just call whatever you want so long as it works which is what happened in the 40s and the 50s and and you know to a slight extent maybe to Peyton Manning by the end of his career where he was waving people off going no no I got it but it's extremely rare and the fact that like nobody freaked out about that statement I was like I can't be the only one that's like do you realize what that really means and my my general assumption was okay you don't because everybody was like yeah yeah sure and I was like, no, no, not yeah, yeah, sure. That's, I don't know if there's another player in the NFL that has that free reign as a wide receiver. The, the only uh, equivalent that I can think of is actually on the defensive side of the ball, and that's Troy Polamalu. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> or know, when he was there. We, be wherever. We, yeah. Like, do the right Where thing. He, Dick Laveau, uh, Dick Laveau, the great Dick Laveau, said, um, you know, Troy was like the one guy on defense where – you trusted him to do whatever he wanted to do because even if he was technically compromising the structure of a coverage, he was only going to do it if he was absolutely sure that he was right. And he was always right. So it's like if if he wanted to blitz, he was going to blitz because he knew that he could get to the quarterback before the quarterback realized that he was in the wrong spot. And Troy had just had such these, these crazy instincts and it goes the other way too where it's like if he was supposed to blitz but he just he had a feeling that you know ball was coming out quick and he had to be in a different spot he was going to be in that other spot you know pat mcafee has that famous story about how you know he was lining up for uh for the fake field goal for a touchdown and troy lined up in the gap that he never lined up in ever his entire time on special teams just because he had that kind of instinct and I think that, that Travis Kelsey has that kind of instinct. And you see it like when Pat's running, too. Oh, yeah. Travis never runs with Pat when Pat's running to his right or running to his left. Regardless of where Travis is, 
and regardless of whatever route he's running, he knows I'm going to run here and then I'm going to sag behind. I'm going to sag towards the middle of the field. Because when Pat's running to his right, a lot of the time he's not going to throw to his right. He's going to look for Travis sagging over the middle and then do his crazy Mahomes thing and throw back over the middle. That's why Travis is always wide ass open whenever Mahomes is on the move is because Mahomes knows that if he if his quarterback is moving to his right, the defense is going to go to the right, so he's going to go to the left. And it's just that kind of instinct, that kind of natural football IQ that that helps him make some of these ridiculous plays. And beyond the fact that he's just so incredibly talented, you know, he's a freak athlete, butter soft hands, all that kind of stuff. He's one of the smartest tight ends I have ever seen and probably ever will see. And uh, I'm just like you. He's on my list to see before he retires because he's, what, like 32 now. I've only got a few more years left. Um, I'm going to kick myself in the pants if I don't see Travis Kelsey live because he's he is a transformational football player yeah. that will be in Canton after five years. He's a first ballot guy. Oh, for sure. I would I would say transcendent. He he's a guy that has done things at the position when you take the entirety of it that very few guys have done throughout history uh, at that position. And and look, this is a guy that was in the league in the league lead for yardage for receivers, not tight ends, receivers right up until the end of the, you know, the end of the season last year. Uh, he's just different in so many ways in the run game, in the pass game, uh, between the years, just a fantastic player. And there were players on both sides that made plays. We saw guys like Justin Matabuke and OA on the defense. We obviously saw Lamar, a bunch of the receivers step up, uh, and then, you know, Kansas City's loaded as well. This was two heavyweights with very talented rosters slugging it out. And I, like you, didn't see the first half. I was taking the train back, got my car, was like, I'm hungry. I'm going to stop. Stopped at a Buffalo Wild Wings because I knew they'd have the game on. Grabbed a snack and was like, I'll watch like a quarter of this and then I'll watch the rest of the game later. Well, I watched like a quarter of it. My food comes. I eat my food, drinking my beer. And I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm not leaving. right i'm gonna sit right here and watch the rest of this because this is getting good and really glad i didn't ended up staying right to the end until you know the ravens ended up sealing it but that's the enter the entertainment value in the nfl because of that two talented rosters just slugging it out primetime game i i wasn't leaving i was glued to my seat i'm like no i'm I'm going to stay right here. I'm going to watch the end of this. And that those are the kind of games we've had. You alluded to it earlier in the podcast through the first two weeks. That's why the NFL ratings are so high. That's why it's such a tremendous product. And there's, there's so many uh, pieces of the NFL media landscape like us that have spun off around it because there's just tremendous interest. It's just compelling. It's fascinating. It's great theater. It's amazing. And this was a, a sort of primetime gem example of a game like that. One last note before we move on to our third game. Um, the Ravens played, uh, in, in, to honor Michael K. Williams, uh, the great actor from The Wire who played Omar, uh, they played Omar's whistle before the Ravens came out of the tunnel. And like that, that gave me chills because it's so... Baltimore 
And like, there's been like a movement on Twitter where it's like, Ravens, if you don't play Omar's whistle before they come out of the tunnel, every fucking game from here on out, you're doing it wrong. Because it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. It was a beautiful moment to a to a beautiful artist. Um, so I have to tell you a story, and this is in no way on the level of Omar at all, <laughs> or is matched to Baltimore, but uh, the Buffalo Wild Wings I stopped at is the one near my house, and two years ago, I watched just about every Bears game there, because direct TV situation, blah, blah, blah. So if there was a Bears game that wasn't on primetime, I went to Buffalo Wild Wings. Look, Buffalo Wild Wings, not necessarily my favorite. It's solid. But I knew they'd have the game on, and they're really consistent like that. And sure enough, they have all the games on. So you get fans from all over the country, like me here in the Pacific Northwest, that don't You're, you're really them. angling for a Buffalo Wild Wings sponsorship on the pod, aren't you? You know, if they want to kick down, <laughs> I'm all about it. But you get fans from all over who are doing the same thing to track their teams. And there was this guy, and he's a Baltimore fan. And he is a big Baltimore fan. And he was there a couple of years ago, and he has... Yeah, his Ravens jersey on. He had the big B chain on, right? His hat backwards. And whenever the Ravens made a play and you're Baltimore Wild Wings, whether or not they're on the big screen, you could tell because this guy would stand up and go, Be more. That's right, be more. And you're like, okay, the Ravens, the Ravens crowd's here. It's fun, right? It's it's fans. It's like being in a stadium except you're in a Buffalo Wild Wings having a having a beer and a sandwich. Right? So Obviously, a little bit sparser crowd at Buffalo Wild Wings when I stopped in. I haven't been there in a couple of years. Didn't go at all last year because of COVID, right? First time in in a long time. And, you know, tables are spaced out, a little bit sparser crowd. Didn't really look around the place and was, you know, the game on the big screen because it's Sunday Night Football. And sure enough, first Lamar run I hear. Be more. I turn around and it's that guy. (laughs) And I'm like, he's back. Right? I'm back. Oh, He's back. Man. NFL football is back. And he obviously had a great night because they ended up beating the Chiefs. He was the only guy. He had no posse with him. He was like the Baltimore fan repping Baltimore. He was loud and proud. And it was it was great. It was fun. I was like, now now NFL football is back because B-more guy is back. And, you know, he had a tremendous night. So good times. It just feels like this football season just feels like a homecoming. It feels like... It does you feel know, like coming back. To yeah, like, like you know, we're having the barbecue in the backyard, seeing friends we haven't seen in a long time. It's just agreed. Uh, it's refreshing. It's so refreshing. Um, now speaking of great games, well, maybe not for everybody, but for at least <laughs> half the people involved. Sure. Uh, our three up number three is Saints versus Panthers. Uh, I, I gotta tell you, man, Saints fans have been on a little bit of emotional roller coaster these first couple weeks because they beat the brakes off the Packers in Week One and then got absolutely crushed by the Panthers in Week Two. So they don't really know what to make of their team yet. But I will say this to Saints fans listening to this: don't feel too bad because the Panthers are really good. <laughs> so a division game against a fast, ferocious defense where your offensive line just could not sort out pressures at all. You're working with a very thin group of skill position players. It almost it almost felt like this kind of game was destined for New Orleans. Like this was so perfectly set up for them to get their asses kicked and they did. I don't necessarily think it's going to 
stay like that for them all year. I still think they're a really good team. But this was a perfect storm of hyper-athletic, ultra-aggressive defense versus a quarterback that's still getting acclimated, an offensive line that still hasn't gelled yet, and their best wide receiver being Marquez Callaway, I guess. Like this, I guess. this kind of <laughs> felt uh, predetermined in a way. So don't feel too bad if you're a Saints fan. That's just going to happen sometimes. But if you're a Panthers fan, you're feeling great because all of a sudden you have statistically so far the best defense in the league. Sam Darnold seems to be going through a little bit of a career resurgence. CMC looks like CMC. The young receivers look really good. The offensive line has been hit or miss, but at least it hasn't been awful. Like, there's there's a lot to love here with this Panthers team. And lucky for them, I don't know when this podcast is coming out. I might get it out before Thursday Night Football. But lucky for them, they're going to get a cupcake Houston Texans squad for week three and potentially could be looking at 3-0 and here to start the year. And at least history has shown that if you start the year 3-0, and you're probably going to the playoffs. So Panthers fans feeling pretty good right about now. Yeah, it's starting to gel for the Panthers plan. And and just that shout out to Saints fans. If if you thought that, you know, Jameis Winston as your quarterback was going to lead to a very safe and steady year in terms of results, uh, that was probably a projection. That's not going to happen. Jameis is going to go up and down. The highs will be very high. The lows will be very low. They beat the brakes off the Packers, which was unexpected. I lost money on that game. And then they come back against, again, a very good defense. And when I say the Panthers' plan is coming together, last year's draft was all defense top to bottom. They added some very important pieces in the offseason. They drafted defense again at the top. Got J.C. Horn. And the plan starts to come together, right? Phil Snow is a guy who every place he's been, he says that year two, it starts to come together and year three, it comes together and he has his best result. So he's on or slightly ahead of schedule. And we got to see that in, in full throat versus the saints, which is talent meshing with scheme meshing with, I'm starting to get it and trust what everybody else is doing at the same time. And we saw contributions from all over that team. Like Shaq Thompson flashed. We saw, you know, J.C. Horn ends up getting his pick, but that was really at the end of the game. That wasn't even, you know, that wasn't even necessarily a contributing factor in this game. And there's so many guys that are starting to pay dividends. We, you know, I talked about Brian Burns in our, uh, you know, Defensive Player of the Year episode. Your guy, uh, Bravion Roy, by the way, speaking of defensive lineman, he's coming through. I, they just got it from all over the place, right? Shaq Thompson, like I said, flash. Jeremy Chin, we talked about last year, uh, could have been defensive rookie of the year. Brian Burns, Justin Burris, not necessarily a guy you'd say. Hassan Reddick, flash early, had his sack uh, right in the first quarter. Morgan Fox is a guy that I know you're going to be talking about. Derek Brown, like they have this rotation and everybody was chipping in and making plays coming off the edge they had safeties they had edge rushers they had defensive tackles getting pressure um they locked up the run game alvin Kamara did not look like a threat and it's very rare that that happens because Kamara is consistently a threat running and passing they had him snuffed like he never really broke anything in this game they just suffocated him 
And that defense is smothering. On the other side, the offense is starting to come together. We talked about all the weapons they've assembled. Darnold was complete Jekyll and Hyde in this game. And he was he was more on it than he was off. But there was the thing I wrote in my notes is there wasn't any middle ground. He was zipping middle completions in tight windows. And he did it over and over again. But when he missed, he missed. He flat out missed. He had the brain fart, sort of, I'll just cough it up interception to Malcolm Roach, the defensive lineman. He basically handed it to him um, as he was getting sacked. There were some there were some strange decisions, but again, it was probably about two-thirds, one-third. And the two-thirds, he was ripping the ball. Like, Sam Darnold was just absolutely throwing needle shot completions to guys that were covered and, and taking chunk yardage, moving him down, scoring touchdowns. Um, and then occasionally when he missed, it was, oh, yeah, that's that's Sam. But more good than bad, and that's a great start. And if he has that kind of support from Phil Snow's defense, which it looks like he's going to because it it isn't one guy that you can shut off. It's not like, oh, if we take care of Khalil Mack, no problem. Like the pressure is going to come from all over. Uh, there were several times I talked to you about this that Jameis early in the game, I swear to God, he stood up, held the ball in front of his chest and went, what is this? Like he had no idea and he ended up taking a loss on the play, but just that confusion of wait, wait, what? This isn't like anything I've ever seen. The NFL is getting used to again, Phil Snow's defense, which was forged against spread concepts in the big 12 and other places. And he, he just looked lost and, and kind of just Seeing, you know, seeing ghosts is the one that gets applied to Darnold on the other side. That was his line in New York. Jameis on Sunday was seeing ghosts. This is going to be a little bit of a diatribe, so I apologize in advance. But I I want (laughs) to go for it. I want to give people a little preview of of what I've been researching this week, because the next film room episode I'm doing over on the film room channel is on Phil Snow's defense and and how everything has kind of come together. So Matt Rule has never coached a game without Phil Snow as his defensive coordinator. They've been together forever, you know, even going back to Temple. And he was a, a pretty typical 3-4 guy at Temple. You know, three down linemen, four linebackers. Most of the time it was going to be a five-man surface. So the two outside linebackers are going to be up in the line of scrimmage, making a total of five guys in the line of scrimmage, two linebackers behind them, single high safety, a lot of cover three, a lot of cover one. They go to Baylor in the Big 12. A lot of air raid over there. A lot of passing concepts that absolutely kick the shit out of single high safety looks. So they kind of copied a little bit of of what Texas was doing. And they started incorporating a lot. And also what Iowa State was doing. They call it the Cyclone Stack. You know, it's a lot of 505. It's a lot of tight front. You know, three guys in the line of scrimmage dropping eight in coverage, two high safeties, and they kind of mixed that together with their 3-4 single high stuff. And it worked. They were like seventh or eighth in defensive efficiency after, as you said, two or three years when they kind of got everything working together because that was not their forte. They had to learn it on the fly after going to the Big 12 and getting lit up. They were like 100th or something in defense their first year. And they're like, oh, shit, we got to do different stuff down here. They actually throw. So then he goes to the NFL and it, it they they kind of played a little bit too soft 
for the NFL game last year. And it was they just got dinked and dunked to death because they realized that, A, either you're going to get run on for five yards of carry, and they'll do that over and over and over again, or you're just going to have quarterbacks sit back and you know throw dragon concepts all over you. And again, you'll give up 12, 13, 14 play drives. This year, they kind of mixed everything together from their journey. They're, they're back to those more pro-style three, four fronts with five-man surfaces, two linebackers, single high safety structure, but they're incorporating a lot of the pressure packages that you see at the college level and some defensive line techniques that you see at the college level. A lot of four-man pressures that are called creepers where you're bringing second-level defenders and DBs and everything like that, and it looks like a blitz. They call it simulated pressures, but it's really still just four guys and that's actually how they got that last Brian Burns sack was they brought a creeper and the offensive line just didn't know how to handle it. They let Burns go free and he absolutely detonated Jameis in the back. So they're throwing more of that stuff in that you see quite frequently at the college level these days because guys want to figure out how to get pressure without sacrificing people in coverage because you still got to guard all these receivers in space. Not to mention you have, to me, the X factor of the entire defense you, know, you talk about Derek Bryan, you talk about Brian Burns, Jeremy Chan, all those guys. Based on everything that I've charted from their first two games, Morgan Fox is like the MVP of this defense. This defense would not function properly without Morgan Fox, who plays kind of a quasi-four-eye, plays five technique for them. They'll bump him out to six at times. Even on passing downs, they'll put him at a three just because they can. And he plays this uh, you know, strong side defensive end position where you have to do everything. Like He rushes the passer like a maniac. He's like third in interior pressures at the moment. He plays the run extremely well. He has to read and react based on the first step of the offensive lineman. Like there was a play he made, I think it was in the Jets game, on he's a five technique, and they ran power away from him. He read the pull key from the guard over his left shoulder, knew that they were running power away from him, stepped back, scraped over the top, got in the hole front side and made the play. Like coaches draw that up in the whiteboard all the time. But to actually see a guy do that, I was like, damn. So, like, this defense, again, would not function without Morgan Fox. Unfortunately, I don't think he's practiced all week this week with something. I'm not entirely sure what his, what his problem is. But, like, pay attention if he doesn't play on Thursday because <laughs> this defense will significantly change without him on the field. Like, they, they need him really bad. Yeah, it was. it's a fascinating watch, and it's not often that you see a well-coached team, a Sean Payton coached team, have as many busts on the offensive line just flat out like, and they were missing their center. We need to bring that up, right? They they didn't have McCoy. They went to Ruiz. like, And there were just flat out like, like open rushers because I thought you thought, oh, well, nope. <laughs> and that was it for Jameis. And, and you were talking about a play where he bailed out at the end of the game with no pressure. Like he took the snap and just flat turned like he was being pursued and left the pocket. And you were like, 
What's that? Uh, and the answer is, he's been looking at it for three quarters. He doesn't know where it's coming from, and he's just wide-eyed and looking around, and he's not going to make great plays at that point. So the Panthers, pretty much all over the Saints. CMC, uh, he deser- you, you mentioned it, but he de- just deserves another mention. I, oh, We missed CMC, right? When he was hurt, he's so damn dynamic he is in a category of a very few guys and one of them was on the other side in this game alvin Kamara, right a guy that can act equally as a receiver as a rusher inside outside different concepts ran a bunch with power had a power touchdown right he just legs churning and then can equally go out on the screen make a guy miss and go 30 yards like your best slot receiver there aren't many guys that can do that consistently and and look the panthers are just so much better with cmc on the field he bails them out of some he he had a play where they threw him what was basically a four-yard loss dead to rights guy was right on him step back gave himself a little bit of cushion juke to the side ends up barely getting past the line of scrimmage ends up being like a three-yard gain but it should have been dead to rights three to four yard loss it's like a seven yard difference and it's purely because cmc is cmc like it's it's fun you talked about a reunion it's fun to see him back on the football field and making plays like that because he's i'm not going to say he's one of one but he's like one of five that can give you the the variety of skill set um power inside speed outside vision hands you know baseball talks about a five tool player like if cmc played baseball he'd be a five tool player people always talk about uh not paying running backs i'm like well he's, it he's depends on the running, running back, back. <laughs> yeah he's not just a running back he can do a lot of things for you he can fill two and a half roles um you know the other thing is you know we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the saints defense um Peyton Turner showed up in a big way, especially down the stretch. Uh, Had a huge sack. Yeah. Talk any, and another one that got or roughing the passer, which was there was okay. There's three roughing the passer calls in this game. And the first one, I made a note of it because it was egregiously horrible. And by that, I mean, he barely touched him. He literally took Jamison, like two hand pushed him in the shoulder plate, like burp. James didn't even fall over. They threw a flag 15 yards, roughing the passer. It was at 1148 in the first quarter. I made note of it. It says, worst roughing call ever. Just touched him. Came in. I was like, why did they throw a flag? And then they were like, roughing. And I was like, whoa, back it up, back it up. I didn't see. And he literally came in, gave him a two-hand shove in the chest. James took about three steps backward. That's roughing the passer. Peyton Turner got one later. I understand it was going low. But Peyton Turner really cranked it up at the end of the game. Paulson Adebo played great. One of the corners out of Stanford that we really liked. He's getting his chance. Desi Trufant um, made a play in this game. Was on the Bears roster. Ended up getting picked up by New Orleans. Had a great pass deflection. Uh, Malcolm Roach, we talked about, ended up with a random interception, but played some pretty stout interior defense along the way. Uh, There's just a lot of guys that, uh, you can't overlook the Saints defense is not bad and the Panthers were still able to move the ball against them 
Uh, Demario Davis, of course, had, you know, a million tackles like he always does. Marcus Williams had some really big flash plays in this game, both coming up on the line and in pass coverage deeper down the field. So it's not like the Saints are bad, but the Panthers are getting good in a hurry. You get that classic video game, get good thing. Like the Panthers are getting good, like quick. And if Darnold still has some things to clean up, if CMC can stay healthy, they have a ton of weapons on offense. The defense looks ahead of the offense. If anything, they're going to be a tough out for the rest of the year. This week's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Fall is always a busy time of year. You have a lot of holidays, a lot of family gatherings. At least for me, it's probably my busiest work period of the year because, you know, football. And at least this time of year, I tend to have a lot less time on my hands to go grocery shopping and meal planning and, of course, cooking. And that's where HelloFresh comes in. For me, at least, because my house is kind of way away from all the local grocery stores, my average grocery store trip takes well over an hour, and that's not counting the time it takes to plan out my meals and put together shopping lists and all that. But with HelloFresh, I just get all of these portioned out ingredients delivered right to my door. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to plan everything. And every meal that I've gotten has been amazing. HelloFresh also makes it easy to make all of their recipes too, just by following the instructions, even if you're relatively new to cooking. Plus, an average HelloFresh customer saves 28% in cost compared to going to their local grocery store and buying the same ingredients to make the same meals. And because each meal is portioned out perfectly, you're not buying a bunch of extra food that ends up going to waste too, so HelloFresh is more sustainable as well. For people that have crazy schedules or people that just want to learn to cook great food that doesn't cost a lot of money, HelloFresh has been an incredible service for me for a very long time, and I know that you're going to love it too. So if you want to try it out for yourself, go to HelloFresh.com bootleg14 and use promo code bootleg14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that is HelloFresh.com bootleg14 and use promo code bootleg14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. All right, EJ, uh, let's get to the first of three down, which is, uh, I don't want to say it's the depressing part of the podcast, but if your team is the subject of it, you're probably not going to like it very much. Uh, first up is the Miami Dolphins, who, uh, let's just say, everything that possibly could have gone wrong against their division rival, the Bills, absolutely did go wrong. They lost, what was it, 35 nothing. You know, Tua broke his ribs because the offensive line can't protect worth a damn. He's not playing this Sunday, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's not playing for several Sundays because broken ribs really, really hurt. The defense got shredded. As I mentioned, the offensive line got shredded. After Tua, um, I'd say their backup quarterback situation is not ideal. Jacoby Brissett really, really struggled. So I, I look at this Dolphins team, who I predicted to win the division, and I thought that they would have given a much more valiant fight to the Bills. They don't have their starting quarterback for however long it's going to be. The offensive line is massively underperforming. I don't know what to make of them right now. And setting the Bills aside, I don't even know if they're as good as the Patriots, who they beat in week one. Like, they barely beat the Patriots, who historically, 
September Patriots are not the same as October, November, and December Patriots. Like, the Patriots are going to get a lot better between now and playoff time. In the rematch, I'm not so sure that this team is going to be able to hold up against New England. Is Miami the third best team in the AFC East with or without Tua? Because after this past Sunday, I'm kind of starting to think that maybe they are. Yeah, it's not far off from my mark on this game. We had sort of circled this game. We had originally talked about possibly going to this game three or four months ago when we were looking at the season. We are like, early season in Miami? We, we were predicting, you know, strong season for Miami. We knew Buffalo was going to stay strong at that point. Brian Dable was still in town. Josh Allen was still the quarterback. Things were looking good. We are like, this is going to be the... This is going to be the sort of crux power move early in the season. And early season games in Miami are in Miami's favor. It's still hot. It's still humid. Teams get smoked by that. They come in and and get overwhelmed. Now, same thing. Miami goes north late in the year. You know, that game goes to that home stadium's favor. This, everything was lined up for Miami to do as well as they could. They were largely at full strength. They didn't have any major uh, minuses heading into the game. They, you know, everybody's dinged up a little bit. But they laid an egg. This this was not a competitive game. They got flat out smoked. And that's kind of the thing with Miami right now is like the plan looks good. We like the GM. We like the talent. We like the coaching. You put up zero points against the folks that are currently holding your division title. That's that's not okay. Like at this point of the program, it's not like they don't have their quarterback. Yes, he got knocked out of the game. It's not like they don't have offensive linemen. They have a bunch of them. They've invested in it. It's not like they don't have weapons. They do. They picked one up high. They have a great tight end. Like zero is not acceptable. I don't care how good the other team is. Early season at your house, zero is not acceptable. The hard part for them is their next three games is they are at the Raiders this week. Which Not a good draw tough. right now. Raiders That's are hot. Uh, they host the Colts, who, assuming the Colts can kind of get their head out of their ass a little bit, like theoretically the Colts are are going to be a very tough out themselves, like without, uh, without Tua on the field. I I don't feel great about picking Miami even, in that even game. Even money at, at best, yeah. Even money at best. And then, week five, they're on the road to Tampa. I'm not saying they will start one and four, but one and four is absolutely on the table right now. And I, I'll i tell you, I, I don't remember the last time I saw a one and four team come back and make the playoffs. Like, maybe the math changes in a 17-game season. Like, maybe it's conceivable, but shit, in this division, you you go down by three games behind the division leader? Oof. No, they've got to split with the Colts, and they've got to get a roll against the Raiders or the Bucks. Either one, they need to split. They need to kind of come out with on, on an any given Sunday kind of win, and it does happen. The parody in the NFL is... I don't want to say unmatched, but it's uh, unbeaten, right? It comes back and rears its head every year. They could do that. If they do that, I'm with you. They have a puncher's chance. It's still not a great setup, right? If you look at that record as opposed to one and four, it's it's better, but it's like life preserver better. So they're going to have to get that. And I'm with you. The odds 
don't look like they're going to get that right now. And if they do start one and four, not saying it's over, but the band is warming up. It's going to be very, very <laughs> tough to come back from that. Why don't we talk about uh, another team in the AFC East for a second three down? Uh, Zach Wilson. Man, you thought Miami had a rough day. <laughs> Zach Wilson individually had, I mean, God, he threw more picks in one game against the Patriots than he threw all last year at BYU. Like, it, it, it was a shockingly bad performance. Like, even by rookie quarterbacks against a Belichick defense standards, like, that, that was a take him out back to the woodshed drubbing. And it wasn't like, oh, he had a couple batted at the line or anything, you know, the miscommunication with the receiver. Like, no, all four of those picks were awful. The last one where he just launched it off his back foot to God knows who. Like, I I didn't get it. And full disclosure, I watched Zach Wilson versus the Panthers in week one when I was starting the Panthers defense too. At least until like the last quarter of that game, he didn't look too hot either. So we're going on back-to-back games where Zach Wilson just is not making good decisions. He's missing some throws that, at least by BYU, Zach Wilson was not missing. His pocket presence was shaky at best. I don't know. To me, it looks like so far, at least, the game has been a little bit fast for him. And if there was any like veteran option on the roster, if they had Andy Dalton and not Chicago, Andy Dalton probably be starting right now because it it just hasn't looked good. And this is not me saying that Zach Wilson's going to be a bust or blah, 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 all that reactionary bullshit. I'm just saying in the first two games of Zach Wilson's career, there's rookie mistakes and then there's whatever the hell that was. And he's he has a lot to get corrected because it just... It has not been good. It really has not been good. Yeah, the worst thing that could have happened for him was that he had a pretty decent first half against the Panthers, right? And if you really dig into it, yeah, no, it wasn't like great veteran moments against the Panthers, but it looked pretty good for a first-round rookie. Uh, again, Jets fans are used to seeing Adam Gase offenses, so what, what Wilson did in the first half against the Panthers, people were like, aha! He has arrived, right? Which is why we have been preaching for weeks. Don't overreact to week one, good or bad, right? Don't don't sell your stock if your team bombs out in week one. They can write the ship. And if you look suddenly wonderful and beat somebody you shouldn't or play somebody tough deep into the game that you shouldn't, uh, you know, maybe just temper expectations, wait until the end of the month and see what you got. Zach Wilson's week two... Like, this was Bill Belichick teaching a rookie a lesson, right? He he basically said, I know what he can't do, and I'm about to show him what he can't do. And let's see if he dials it down after I do it two or three times, or if he sort of doubles down. And Wilson, for the most part, like you said on the last pick, doubled down. He was just like, heave it up. He heave it up against the Patriots. They're a well-coached team, right? 
Bill Belichick will write the ship. Uh, this was the <laughs> funny story. Uh, so the Seahawks game was a later game. It was a 1.30 start. You and I were not together on Sunday morning. We ended up meeting up in the parking lot to go into the stadium. And I was like, oh, what'd you hear about the early games while we're waiting in line? I was like, ah, oh, it sounds like Zach Wilson's having a rough day. I was like, you know, three picks. <laughs> You're like, nah, it's four now. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> What? I just looked. It was three. And you're like, you know, and we, we hadn't seen the game. We hadn't looked at the film, but it was just like, wait a minute. He played okay in, in week one. He played pretty well in preseason, preseason's preseason, but he played pretty well against what we both thought was a good Panthers defense in week one. Like what the, oh, Patriots. Yeah. Mm, no, this is Bill. Like, like you said, taking him out behind the woodshed and going, yeah, nothing's for free, Rook. And, and Jets fans are going to have to know that they're going to have to put their faith in Robert Sala and the staff he's brought in and the talent they've acquired, which is tremendous. They're going to have to build with that. It is not a light the switch and we swept Gase away and now we're a division contender. Not at all. They're going to have to go the slow, steady road, learn how to win, mesh that talent with scheme. And again, we were just talking about with the Panthers. Year two, year three, this this team's going to come together maybe quickly. This year, everybody like, woohoo, Zach Wilson's going to save us. Rookie rookie quarterbacks don't save. It's it's not what they do. They learn, they get better, and and hopefully they show they have some of that it, some of that moxie. Uh, we saw a little bit of that from Joe Burrow last year. We we, we knew that he had that, but uh, interestingly enough, uh, we're going to talk about him uh, in a little bit. So uh, Zach Wilson, temper expectations, hope that he can limit some of those crazy mistakes, but boy, yeah, he... He got it handed to him on Sunday. It was it was a rough day. Our uh, number three for three down, yet another offense. Not not quite as as rough as Zach Wilson, but considering some of the talent they have available to them, I would say the Steelers' offense has sputtered, and that's a generous way to describe it. The first two weeks, I know the Bills' defense is very good. Um, I know the Raiders are are much better defensively, but. You invest a first-round pick in a running back, and you're getting, at best, like 45 rushing yards in each of these first two games. You know, you're lucky to average like three and a half yards a carry. We we said all offseason leading up to the draft, like when Najee was being connected to the Steelers, it's like we love Najee the player. But after the Steelers took him, we said Najee the player is not going to be able to create holes for himself. They needed to invest even more in the offensive line than they did. And, and to be perfectly frank, the rookies that the Steelers drafted in the offensive line, I thought, have acquitted themselves fairly well. But overall, I still am not convinced that they did enough to address the offensive line, either through the draft or through free agency. The depth still isn't there. Obviously, they're really struggling to gain any sort of movement in the run game at all. You know, Ben's arm is not what it was. I I do think that it's maybe a little bit more snappy than it was last year, but this is nowhere near prime Ben. He's throwing, I think it was like 40 passes uh, last week. He threw 32 in week one, and he's still 19th in terms of number of 20 plus air yard passes in the league among starting NFL quarterbacks, and you're throwing that often 
and only 11% of them are going past 20 yards, despite having Chase Claypool, Deontay Johnson, Pat Fryermuth is a really athletic tight end, Eric Ebron's a really athletic tight end. Like, you're not pushing the ball down the field at all, despite throwing that much. There's just something really wrong here. It's they can't run the ball, they can't stretch the field, their quarterback can't move. I don't know what the solution is here other than just hoping everybody gets healthy and magically starts executing better. But absent of that, like I don't see an easy fix. I really don't know what, how far I should say the Steelers are going to go this year because I, I don't think their offense is any better this year than it was last year. And their offense was not that good last year. We talk a lot about the league being offensively focused, right? It's it's not only offensively focused it's a passing focused league. So if you got a quarterback that's not mobile and people are going to be teeing off on him, look, Ben has taken as many shots as anybody. And he is, there's no questioning his toughness, but that that's mileage, right? We talk about running backs taking a lot of hits. Like I would argue that Ben Roethlisberger is taking more hits than probably any current quarterback playing. He's not the old. Even Brady, despite Brady playing how many more years than him? Right, but so many less hits if you add him up. Now, I don't I don't have numbers to back that up. Now I'm gonna have to go do the addition because everybody's gonna attack me in the comments and say, but really, actually, uh no, Ben early in his career, he was so big and so strong that he would shuff guys off. He had this sort of center of gravity where people would hit him full out and he'd just kind of go, Yeah, yeah. And he kept playing that way, and he's played a lot of years. He's been incredibly successful, but he can't move like he used to. And you, you can't think that even though he was built out of iron for so many years, that that, that hasn't added up, right? That, that he doesn't feel all that stuff every day. And he's just going to feel it more because people know where he is now. And he was never super mobile, but he could get away. And he was just super tough, super strong. He was he was Big Ben. He'd just stand back there in the in the pocket and take shots and throw bombs. And and he can't throw the bombs anymore. He's still going to take the shots. And I'm with you that that leaves me questioning where that arrow is going to be mid season or or especially late in the season when the arm fades for older quarterbacks. It always does. And and all that punishment starts to add up, like it. I have more questions than answers about the Steelers right now. Let's go to three interesting, which is, again, it's not three good and it's not three bad. It's literally just three weird (laughs) things or three notable things that we want to point out that we just could not go this entire show without at least mentioning. The first is I'm I'm calling the Eagles enigma. Let Let me set the stage for this sequence of events that happened over the course of two consecutive possessions early in the game against San Francisco. And and Eagles fans, I apologize for having to rehash this because you're going to be really pissed off just remembering how winnable this game was. Keep in mind, the final score, the Niners won 17-11. So Philly was up 3-0, three minutes to go in the first. Uh, They marched down to about... 10 seconds left in the first. Uh, Hertz throws a beautiful ball to Jalen Rager for a 36-yard touchdown. Joyous occasion. Rager's doing it. He's he's looking like he's worth the first-round pick. Oh, wait, no, he stepped out by like an inch. So they call the touchdown back. They end up working down to the 29-yard line, drive stalls, going to kick a field goal, going to try to go up 6 nothing. It gets blocked. Shit. They get no points when... They were an inch away from getting seven. 
the very next Eagles drive. They start on their own three-yard line. San Francisco works it down the field a little bit, punts, pins them at the three. They get a 91-yard pass to Quez Watkins because that's very on-brand for Quez Watkins. He's super fast. They then get seven plays inside the 11-yard line. Six of them were inside the six-yard line. No points. And they, they got real cute. They called Philly special on fourth and three for some godforsaken reason. They, it's, it's incomplete. They get nothing out of the drive. I'm losing my mind. EJ's losing his mind. They very easily could have been up 17 to nothing, like midway through the second quarter, and they end up losing 17 to 11. If that doesn't tell you how crazy the NFL is and how the difference in a blowout and a loss is on a knife's edge in this league, I don't know what will demonstrate it because I mean, if I'm an Eagles fan, I am sick over that game because it was so, so winnable and they still lost. Yeah, I went back to watch this game. I was really interested because the the Philly defense played amazing in week one. Really, uh, we were watching that game in Caesar Sportsbook and I turned to you halfway through that. I was like, man, Philly is smacking them around like their defense is flying around. That's, you know, I didn't necessarily expect that. So I just sort of took note and said, "Hey, you know, Shanahan game next week. This this is gonna be something to watch. I wanna I wanna see again if the 49ers excel, if if Philly can hold it together." So I went back and watched. This is one of the first rewatches I did this week, and I was watching. I was watching it late at night, and this was all. This whole segment was spawned by the fact that I I sent you a DM, and I've got it pulled up because it just cracked me up. And so I just laid out not the entire sequence, but the two sequences linked together is is really powerful. Um, but it was the 90-plus yard completion to Quez, which is a beautiful ball from Jalen Hurts. We need to say he throws it from his own end zone, throws it over, over coverage, over the shoulder. It's in stride. It's a, it's a Jalen Hurts moon ball. We'll just call it what it was. And it was awesome. And I'm like, so Philly throws a 90-plus yard completion from their own two and comes away with zero points. And your response was, how the F does that even happen? <laughs> like, well, you're going to have to go back and take a look and then linking it together because again, they did, they had a chance for field goal. They got nothing. They go down, they play a, the first play. And this was probably, and again, Philly fans really sorry to set you off this way. This isn't just to grind salt in the wound. It's because it's an amazing thing. And that's why it ended up in three. Interesting. The very first play when they go all the way down on San Francisco is a false start. <laughs> they just <laughs> kick themselves straight in the teeth and give themselves five yards. But my point from there is even so, you're sitting at like the seven-yard line. You have Jalen Hurts, a legitimate dual threat. He showed it in this game. Ran for 81 yards, right? 8.1 or 82 yards, 8.2 per and a TD. Like legitimate threat with his legs. Looked easy running the ball all day. Made good choices there. Had a couple of great deep shots. Wasn't was not great passing the ball all day, but like talented with his arm, talented with his legs. You're gonna make the defense account for everybody, or at least you should. You're on the seven. <laughs> you have a lot of playmakers. They drafted Devonta Smith a pie. They got a good tight end who can work. Like, you know, and they get 
nothing. And they didn't even look close. Now, credit to D'Amico Ryans and San Francisco defense. They made it difficult. Fred Warner had a couple of tremendous plays in that seven-play sequence that you were talking about, both in the pass and against the run. Philly never looked close to getting points, and you legitimately delivered the ball to the doorstep of San Francisco, and then you never even really knocked. You didn't look like you ever had a legitimate shot of scoring. And that's the sort of, their, you hear you hear people talking about teams learning how to win, new coaching staffs learning how to put it together, not getting cute, all that stuff. My answer to, to Brett was, oh, it's kind of nagyitis. Like they got cute and called a bunch of weird stuff down near the goal line that never really threatened. Like, these are the things that teams need to do. They have the talent, they have the coaching, they have scheme. It's not that they can't do it. It's that they don't execute it well. You look at Brady or Rodgers in that situation, they're throwing a very crisp, you know, three yard out on a break, balls in the air, guy catches it six inches in front of the defensive back, leans into the end zone, it's a score, goes down as six, they walk back, look at the tablets, get some Gatorade, do it again, right? Philly takes seven plays, to basically burn their 91-yard reception and come away with zero. And it is absolutely the difference in a game. And yeah, if I was an Eagles fan, I'd be upset because this game was well within reach and they played, you hear it all the time, well enough to win, but they didn't, and this is why. Yeah, well enough to win and still not winning. Uh, Unfortunately, has been... A little bit too emblematic of the Eagles <laughs> ever since their Super Bowl win a few years ago. It's it's been a lot of heartbreakers for that franchise, and we'll uh, we'll add that one to the list. Uh, three interesting number two was something that I'm sure it's happened before, uh, but I certainly can't remember the last time it's happened. And I, I, off the top of my head, I, I I really have no memory of anything like this, and that's Joe Burrow throwing. Three interceptions on three consecutive passes. And there was a little bit of rough luck involved there on the third one. It, you know, got tipped at the line and picked. But the first two absolutely were his fault. On the first one, I just, he somehow did not see Roquan Smith just floating under the receiver, threw it right to him. Uh, The second one was on Jalen Johnson, just stared it down. Jalen was playing over the top of the receiver and bail technique was reading the eyes closed on it, got a pick. And then the third one, it was tipped to the line. And it just goes to show like Joe Burrow for as much as we love him. And I think as, as good as he's going to be for the Bengals, even he still has these days at the office as a young quarterback where you're looking at him, you're like, Joe, the hell are you doing, buddy? <laughs> like, how do you not see Roquan Smith 10 feet in front of you? How do you stare down Jalen Johnson of all corners? Like, it was it was rough, and he got punished. Yeah, Jalen got him. Like, Jalen broke on that ball before he threw it. Jalen studies. Jalen understood what the look was. He understood the route depth. Uh, Matt Bowen did a great breakdown of this on Twitter. Like, he knows that route's going to break between 12 and 15 yards. He knows what it is. And Jalen Johnson starts going forward. He starts, you know, we call that click and close. He he starts his click and close before the ball leaves Burrow's hands. He knows it's coming. So he is well in front of him. He's completely shielding the receiver. And he's basically, he's just, it's whether he catches it or doesn't. He catches it, looks good. You go back, watch that film. 
like Jalen got him on that one. And and Joe's going to have to understand that sometimes that's the case is, you know, the defense gets paid to make plays too. Jalen Johnson is playing as the number one corner in the NFL right now, depending on whose ratings you look at. He's having a tremendous follow-up sophomore season to what was a very good freshman season in the NFL. Um, the third one, yes, rough luck. And it is just when you see that stuff, I don't know, I was playing Monopoly for the first time last night with my kids in forever. And I had completely forgotten about the rule where if you roll three doubles, you go to jail. This is kind of Joe Burrow rolling three doubles in a row. Like it doesn't happen very often. Um, it's not probably going to happen again to him, maybe ever, certainly anytime soon, I would predict. But you know, the Roquan one, you can, you know, I've seen a lot of people analyze that pick and, and say what he was looking at, what he missed, what he, what he didn't see. Um, when we were talking about Roquan's all pro candidacy last year, we said what he needs is big play where he picks it off and scores, hopefully in a primetime game because it sways voters. It shouldn't. He didn't have any of those last year and he ended up coming up on the short end of the stick for all pro voting, although he shouldn't have. This year, still playing tremendous football and Picked off Joe Burrow on Sunday and ran back. Like that's a that's a big play. Helps the Bears win. Those are the kind of things that start candidacy for that. So tough luck uh, on Burrow's part. We love Burrow. We don't think this is any indication, of course, that Joe's not going to be a great quarterback. We already think he is a great quarterback. But even great quarterbacks have really bad days. You can go back in anybody's history. Favre had plenty of three and four interception <laughs> days. Right. Everybody's got you know Drew Brees has done it. Like. Everybody has their bad days. This was this was one of Joe Burrow's bad days. Um, and, you know, won't be the last one, but my guess is they'll be few and far between because Joe's a smart guy and he learns from his mistakes. Now, three interesting. Number three is Justin Fields finally saw some NFL action in a regular season game. Unfortunately, it was due to an injury to Andy Dalton, who uh, has been ruled out for this week. Nick Foles will be the backup. So Justin Fields is getting his first start this week. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you and I have been heavily anticipating Fields getting out there because, at least when you look at the preseason, you could argue that he looked the best out of any of the five first-round rookies. And we wanted to see him get reps with the actual starters, Allen Robinson, Darnell Mooney, Cole Komet, Dave Montgomery. We wanted to see him out there with his great skill position talent because he was making stuff happen with uh, you know, second and third stringers all throughout the offseason. So I, for one, am very excited. Obviously, it was it was very up and down, you know, him just kind of getting thrown in the middle of a game. He had, you know, one big highlight where he got the corner with his legs and showed off that, yeah, that 4-4 speed's legit. Um, but I'm excited to see him now get the reps with the starters in practice for once, go into a game knowing that he's the starter and hopefully look like the 11th overall pick that we know, or at least that we think he's going to be. Um, it's probably one of the more exciting bears games coming up here in week three that I can remember since probably that 2018 playoff run, because this game, this weekend represents the future and i would say most bears fans yourself included think that that future is going to be pretty bright yeah we're going to see both i want people to temper expectations we are going to see high highs justin fields has them in him 
He showed them in the preseason. He showed them in week one. He ended up scoring with his legs on a, on a great cut to the end zone. Uh, but reps with the starters, knowing your starters, is a different thing. And I think what most Bears fans, uh, based on everything that's happened since Sunday and um, you know what continues to, to kind of go through people's minds, is Justin Fields, if he plays even average for a rookie, he doesn't relinquish his job because he's going to give the Bears more chances. Is our offensive line great? No, it's struggling right now. The interior especially. Like, the tackles played okay uh, against the Bengals. The interior, including Cody Whitehair, are not getting it done. Sam Mustafer's getting tossed around. Cody Whitehair's not looked good. Uh, you know, David Montgomery didn't have the day he had against the Rams, which was surprising but awesome, uh, against the Bengals. The Bengals had re-upped their, you know, uh, they reinvested in their defensive front, and it showed. And look, Justin Fields gives you a better chance to win in those situations, not because he's not going to see pressure. Look, Andy Dalton was seeing pressure. It's one of the reasons he got knocked out. Um, you know, it was a non-contact injury that he left with, but he'd seen pressure before that. And, it, you know, who do you want in the backfield when you're seeing that kind of pressure? A guy that's that big and that strong and has that kind of speed or Andy Dalton, right? Uh, I'm going to take Justin Fields. He's going to create more plays. Is he going to take sacks? He is. Is he going to throw some bad picks? Yep. He stood up at the podium afterwards and says, yep, I didn't see that. It's a learning experience. You know, I know what it is now. Probably not going to do it again. And Justin Fields, by all accounts, has a tremendous memory. Like one of the things that stood out in the pre-draft process that he could go up to the whiteboard, tell you what he did on almost any play from any piece of film. Like he's probably not going to make that mistake again. Is he going to make other mistakes? He absolutely is. Is he going to make some incredible highlights where he takes off for 25, 30 yards, where he rips an 80-yard pass on a dime to Allen Robinson and Allen Robinson freaking drops it because <laughs> he didn't expect to see a ball right there. He hasn't seen one like that in so long. I think he just forgot what it looked like. Um, <laughs> so it's going to happen. He's going to hit Mooney and Komet. He's going to spread the ball around. He did it at Ohio State as well. Uh, it's going to be exciting. It is the future. We're going to see growth. We're going to see the high highs. We're going to see some low lows. Is he going to rack up wins and stack them? Probably not. Is he going to give the Bears a better chance to do that than than what they currently had? And the answer is yes. Even in the state they're in, he absolutely does. It's going to be fun to see him play. Why don't we get to uh, my favorite segment, at least, the uh, bootleg shot of the week. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm going to throw a video of all the nominees because this is a video show now. Last year it was not, so we couldn't really throw up you know, video of the nominees. But uh, if you're just in the podcast version you want to see the video of all these hits, just go to the same timestamp. But over on the YouTube version of the show, you'll get to see all these hits back-to-back. Uh, if you vote on these nominees, we'll have you know ability in the comments below on YouTube to vote on this. Uh, next week, that'll be the winner. So remember to vote on your favorite hit for the bootleg shot of the week. Nominee number one, Nick Ballore, you know, offensive and defensive extraordinaire, plays both sides of the ball, depending on whatever you want him to do. But he also plays special teams. So he's a three-way player for the Hawks. And we were actually at this game and saw this live, him just screaming through on the coverage unit, just detonating the returner i mean you you could hear that from the upper deck just crazy crazy hit it was the hearing it 
It was I yes. saw it. You were you were actually ended up talking to a fan who we should call out whose birthday it was that came up. You you posted where we'd be at the game and, and you were talking to him at the time. It was uh, right before halftime. And I was watching the field, sort of half listening to him watching the field, and I heard it before I saw it. Like because again, the angle we were at on the field, Nick Ballore basically came in behind some of the other the coverage unit and the pad sound in that stadium which amplifies noise anyways like it or hate it it does the crack of plastic on plastic at high speed was like i i recoiled i was like oh and you you turned and said what happened i said somebody because i couldn't tell it was nick below at the time because he was behind other players like somebody just got laid out. Of course, they laid up on the screen, and, and Nick Ballore is a favorite of mine. I was like, 44, there it is. Nick Ballore just crushing the returner, and it was the sound. Like, even when you go back and listen to this on YouTube, like, wait for the sound. It's something else. And the best part is it was a clean hit, too. Like, textbook, lay you the fuck out <laughs> kind of hit. Uh, absolutely teaching tape there from Nick Ballore. Uh, nominee number two, Grant Delpit coming in on the blind side, Davis Mills. Not even really a blind side. He should have seen it coming, but didn't <laughs> because he's Davis Mills. Got absolutely wrecked by Grant Delpit, who's looking nice and spry coming off that Achilles tear from his rookie season that made him miss his entire rookie year. Seems to be uh, back to his former 4-4 speed that we, we enjoyed at LSU. Uh, nominee number three, Quincy Williams. Brother, is it brother or cousin of Quinnen Williams? Relative actually, of Quinnen Williams, I'll just I, say that. Yeah, I don't know is the answer. I think it's brother. Um, and he uh, he absolutely flattened James White in the flat uh, last week. It, it was it was a bone-crushing hit. Might have been the most violent hit out of all of them. Maybe not the most textbook hit, but certainly the most violent yeah a little flare pass to james white he's one of those ones where he's he's keeping his eye on the ball he's coming out in the left catches the ball turns and wow like <laughs> quincy was right there and got all of him yeah he just crushed him uh nominee number four this is actually a, I guess you could say a double nominee because there was actually two raiders that flattened big ben in the pocket he got the pass off but Boy, he took a big hit. He paid the price. He took a big hit while doing it. And it was classic Ben, you know, just buying time, buying time, buying time, trying to get it downfield. But by the time he did get it downfield, I think it was Max Crosby and uh, some linebacker. They were just both equal opportunity uh, deliverers of punishment there. And he got up to his credit, but old man Ben can't take those hits like he used to. I'll say that. Um, and then nominee number five, Brian Burns. We mentioned this sack a little bit earlier. Uh, it was late in the fourth quarter on Winston. They brought one of those creepers. The offensive line, for whatever reason, just could not sort it out. Uh, I think it was Teron Armstead had a two-on-one where he was had to block inside out. And Brian Burns just got let go because they slid the wrong way. And, uh, you know, you give Brian Burns a free shot at the quarterback, which he's had in back-to-back weeks now because of the the design of these pressures. They've been able to get Brian Burns unblocked for sacks. He's so fast and so quick that there was just nothing Winston could do. He just got blown up. There's a play earlier in that game where Kamara needed about four yards for a first down. They threw him a little flare, and you have it's him versus Brian Burns 101. And 
nine and a half times out of 10, Alvin Kamara is going to smoke anybody on him on that route, scoot out for four yards, instant first down. Brian Burns ran him out a yard and a half short. Straight up, one-on-one, no help. That was shocking to me. Like Brian Burns, everybody knows how quick he is. We talk about that, how quickly he gets by people, how good his ghost move is. He's flat out fast too. And there's a difference between quick and fast. And when you can run stride for stride and push Alvin Kamara out short of marker when he wants it, and you're as big as Brian Burns is, like you're fast. So if you get him clean off the edge, if he gets by you with that ghost move, he has the speed to absolutely bring that stuff home. And Jameis... Jameis felt it on the last one. Well, he probably felt it on all of them. <laughs> he 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 got he got cleaned up on the last one. It was it was it was rough. So those are your five nominees for bootleg shot of the week. Again, uh, we're gonna have a vote down in the comments below in the YouTube version of this show. Stop on by, watch all the hits, vote for your favorite, and uh, we'll toast the winner next week. And uh, with that brings us to our last segment, our week three watch list. These are the three games that we cannot wait to dig into on week three. Uh, maybe consider it a little bit chalky, but we don't care. These are the three best games of the week for us. That is uh, Chiefs versus Chargers, because how could you not love Justin Herbert versus Pat Mahomes? You know, two of the freakiest freaks to ever freak. Uh, Tampa Bay versus the Rams. Because Tom Brady versus that Rams defense and Matthew Stafford versus that Tampa defense just sounds like must-see TV to me. And then, obviously, we had to put Chicago versus Cleveland, Justin Fields making his starting debut. Uh, the, the Browns, at least to me, are an extremely entertaining team for a multitude of reasons. It sounds like OBJ is going to make his season debut as well. So lots of reasons to watch that game. All three of these, I think, are just fantastic matchups. And uh, I still haven't decided how I'm going to bet all of them because I, I think that they're all very, very close. Yeah, there's, again, we talked about the NFL just being a tremendously entertaining product. And when we were talking preseason about where we wanted to go and games we wanted to see, uh, two of these were games we circled, right? We're like, come on, Mahomes versus Herbert. Like, we were even talking about it, uh, you know, early enough that – we didn't exactly know when and where. We just knew they were going to play. And we're like, when that happens, we want to be there because that's going to be an air show that is going to be tough to miss. Once Stafford made it to the Rams, there was a lot, to understate it, a lot of anticipation about his fit in that system and what he could do in a McVay offense uh, with all those weapons and Tom Brady continuing to play at an, I'll just say, an ungodly level. That's going to be we, – we flirted with the idea while we were sitting at the Seahawks game about going to this game, about me flying down and us going to the Rams game because, again, if we've got a list of players you want to see, like Brady's a guy that you know I haven't seen live, and I will kick myself if I don't see Tom Brady. He's the best football player ever, uh, and he's playing at such a high level – Again, we don't have a ton of years left, you know, only, I don't know, eight or ten, so I feel rushed. Um, <laughs> but a tremendous game, Bucks and Rams. And then Bears-Browns is just like, Browns are so good, and Justin Fields is such a wild card. It's You call it David Goliath, whatever it is. It's going to be an interesting game no matter what um, because we're going to get to see Fields do his thing. Uh, you know, if you're a Browns fan, you're absolutely hoping that, you know, your team crushes an undermanned opponent, uh, and they should, quite frankly, on paper. I'm, I haven't looked at the line yet, but if the Browns aren't favored heavily, I would be surprised. Um, so it's got to be like at least it's got to be a big line. If it's a three point yeah. line, I would be 
I would be stunned. Um, it shouldn't be a three-point line. Let's put it that way. So anyways, those three are the games we're going to focus on. But of course, we'll watch all the games. We'll, we'll bring you again through this three-up, three-down, uh, three-interesting format. Um, our rule of three that's sort of running the podcast this year. Uh, our chance to run around the league, pick out interesting stories, pick out interesting teams, players, results. Uh, keep you up to date on the NFL, keep you in the game, but uh, tons going on. We're going to be here every week. Uh, we are not going to a game this week. I know we've got you spoiled the last two weeks. We've been there in person, uh, but we'll be bringing you all the great content. We're going to start throwing in some live streams on Fridays uh, throughout the season. We'll certainly watch watch Twitter to find those. Um, got some surprises coming out for you next week. We'll hold those in check for now. Uh, but yeah, keep watching, keep listening, and we'll be here. So uh, we love you all. We will see you back here Wednesday, ideally. We'll see. Uh, we want these to come out on Wednesday. So uh, we'll, we'll hope to see you back here in uh, five or six days, whenever that is, for our week three recap and look ahead into week four. We'll see you all very soon. And until then, later. Take care.